The antidote. 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 You're listening to the antidote with Dave Hawkins. With Christian music that doesn't suck. I'm Dave Hawkins. The Antidote is breaking from tradition tonight by not opening with a song. Then again, tonight there won't be any songs because we'll be visiting with the spoken word artist, Chris Bernsdorf. In the past, I've met with other spoken word artists like Levi the Poet, Soul Graffiti, and Listener, all of whom include music with their poems. But is that necessary? And that was just one of the questions I brought up for Chris. He's a great performer and a thoughtful and prolific poet, who's about to release his latest recording, It's All Joy. Chris and I had lots to talk about, so let's jump in, and I'll also bring in one of his new poems, called Sci-Fi. Spoken word artist Chris Bernstorff is here with The Antidote. Good to meet you, Chris. Hey, how's it going? Just great. I suppose it might be best to describe you as a spoken word veteran, because you've been at this for a long time. Yeah, veteran seems like a a strong word. But yeah, I've been doing it for eight years. Uh, It'll be nine years this fall. That's awesome. I guess everyone has their own creative path. So obviously, you didn't want to be a rock and roll god, so you chose poetry? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think rock and roll god was just not open to me. (laughs) I loved writing first, but I I didn't really admit it until long after I'd like fallen in love with music and I got into like punk and metal and DIY things. Yeah, I just like couldn't sing and I couldn't play an instrument and I always wanted to be in a band. So I never knew what that was going to work out as. And then I sort of fell into spoken word, just unrelated. I was on Indie Vision Music one day and they kept talking about this guy, Bradley Hathaway. So I checked him out and it changed my whole life. Like I I had this crazy like religious experience when I was like 18 where I just was in my creative writing class and I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I'd like, you know, cried to my advisors. I really wanted to change the world, but I didn't know what to do. And I grew up playing sports. So I was I like stopped that when I went to college and I was just trying to like explore what else there was because all I had done was play football and play basketball, which I loved. But I was like, okay, like what else is there in the world? Because I'm not going to be a professional athlete. And one day after class, this like table appeared in my mind and everything off of it cleared. And there's just this sentence, I have to be a poet. And I didn't really think very much of it. It was just sort of this thing that happened. And then I was like, oh, well, all right. And then I just decided to be a poet, but I didn't know what that meant. And I just kept being into music and going to school and knowing I was going to be a poet, but I didn't know what that was. And then I fell into spoken word and just became a fan. And then as I like tried to start doing things with my poetry, I ended up finding out that memorizing stuff and and saying it was the best way to give my poems the voice that I thought they had. Yeah, I tried it out once and then it was really cool. And then I was like, oh, maybe this is my band thing. Like I'm just going to be a poet. And I kind of just went from there and I gravitated towards the music scene because that's 
what I knew. And most of the people that I found early on were like Bradley Hathaway, Levi the Poet, Dan Smith from Listener, people like that who are also tied to music. I suppose for people that haven't, you know, had any experience with spoken word, it could also be described as performance poetry. But that means you have to be uber outgoing. <laughs> yeah, I guess you do. I, I think I'm pretty outgoing as a person. And I don't think I chose that with intention. But then it's something that became really clear is you can't hide. I try not to use a microphone even. So there's like, for me, there's no mic. There's no guitar there's no other band members there's nothing that sounds good like what i do is not sonically appealing it's literally just me talking so it it's really 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 vulnerable a lot of my life has really terrified me but it's something i like felt like i had to do and so i just kept pushing through it like the vulnerability adds an authenticity uh to the art and the experience i think because i I can't be cool and I can't really sound good. So (laughs) there's got to be something really valuable in it or else I'm done for. Isn't that intimidating for you? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm pretty used to it for the most part. Uh, If I haven't performed in a bit, I have a new album and I haven't done shows since uh, January. So when I start touring again, it'll, I'll probably be a little shaky for a bit. Um, But it's something I just had to like, keep pushing into and and like I believe in God so it's just asking God for help because it's kind of embarrassing but I've definitely broken down crying on more than one occasion like before a show or after a show just like terrified that people didn't understand me or that it the art didn't work or the message didn't get across or whatever and it's something I just kind of had to keep persevering through and the Lord's good like there's a lot of positive feedback along the way so yeah, it wasn't all bleak and dark, but it's it's definitely challenging and hard, especially when you're first getting used to it. You make me a sci-fi still life. Use some inexplicable, inarticulable ball of light too big for the frame. Me, the silhouetted man, painted one color and dissolving at the edges, frozen in terror and awe, unable to hold you, unwilling to leave, fixed to the ground before you like a monument and disintegrating, and all the obliterating consciousness ripping depth of space and time beneath the spirit-flattening lexicon of tragedy, read into my soul by an endless parade of scarred and horrified humans Past and present, here you are, impossible and tangible, and I so undeserving. How could a miracle touch this place in the timeline and for me and not leave and open itself and through its center reveal God running through it, carrying me through on a tightrope of blood and flesh and metaphor to himself in a stammering, wordless, prostrate understanding, constantly in this moment, here in the throne room, on our bedroom floor, in the car, at his feet. Here and there and always and at the end and the middle and now and encompassed you dissolve me and all I can say is holy. Spoken word. It's aggressively passionate. Can that kind of intensity turn off some listeners? Yeah, I think so. Um, If I'm honest, I try for the most part to just not think about what it must be like to experience me because it's it is really intense and um yeah there's often an aggressive tone to it and I think that's something for me learning how to introduce myself and introduce my art like in a way like when I get on stage like find a way to to bring people in and have it be invitational because I think spoken word 
is beautiful. Like when I when I saw that Bradley Hathaway video, it took me by the throat. Like I had had to watch when I saw it the first time. I'd never seen anything like it. And I was so moved by the passion and he was flailing his arms. Like you become part of the poem. And I think it's really beautiful for people, but finding a way to introduce that, especially because a lot of people have never experienced it. Um, I started performing at a lot of metal and hardcore shows. And I think the passion of spoken word translated to the passion of that music a lot. And so it was like a, an easier transition, like poetry and metal seem antithetical, but I think the, the passion and the boldness and the toughness of it are actually really spiritually related. I get that. Now, songs are usually music-based and the lyrics are sort of secondary, but it's really the opposite with spoken word. This is true storytelling. Yeah, the words are all I have. So I've got to create something that pulls people in. And language has its own music. Um, so that's part of writing a good poem, whatever that means, is is having uh, language that tastes good and feels good and sounds good. And um, my poetry teacher uh, is this guy named Sasha Feinstein. And when he reads, and he's a tremendous poet and i'm so thankful to have learned from him um but when he reads like it sounds like he's gonna make out with and marry and live in a log cabin forever with every word that he says <laughs> like the articles the thes and a's like every word he means and loves with all that he has so like so listening to him becomes this beautiful comforting powerful experience and i think early on, like having him read and, and talk to me about the art of language and, and the music and the love that has to go into your craft. Yeah, pushed me to try to do something similar with my words to create music and rhythm and to create images. We talk a lot about that. Uh, like good poems generally are they're image driven. So they have, it's not someone telling you a fact, but rather creating a world that you can step into and walk around with and experience with the poet. Well, one of your passionate poems really got some notice because Alternative Press told its readers that your poem, Unfold, had to be heard. Is it tough to get that kind of attention? <laughs> yes, um, I think it is. Gosh, music and art business is all really wild. I, I had a friend help me out with PR and he was able to get in touch with AP and, and get that in front of them. I think that's the really challenging thing with all of this is over and over what I've seen is like one, you just have to make good art, but then two, you've got to find ways to get it in front of the right people when they have the right mindset. Um, like when they are in a place where they can have put attention on something or, or want to take it seriously. And yeah, having my friend pass it to the right person, I think got his like, extra stamp of like, hey, this is really valuable. You should check it out. Um, so I was really grateful for that because that kind of stuff's really hard to come by, especially doing a non-traditional art form, I think. <laughs> I want to hold you because I know you will hold me too. 
I want to hide myself somewhere in the crook of your neck, beneath your hair, between your breasts. Not because the world will solve itself while I am there hiding, and not because it can't see me when I close my eyes and turn farther into your chest, but because I am a storm cloud which lost its thunder and can't tell if it's simply departed like disco or a divorced wife with the kids, or if it somehow got buried and I just lost the map because for a moment, the span of a few minutes, the hemisphere of an hour, the minute hand sailing the white sea of inevitability with a tacit severity, I can escape, tuck myself away and withdraw into the translucent cocoon of your love, both with you and inside of you, and your love, intangible at all times but these, moments when it softly solidifies, like moonlight mist descending into dew upon the skin of folding flowers, tulips and lilacs bowing their heads in sleep or prayer or both and I charge and rest in your chest and your silence say everything and the way an envelope knows everything about a letter from their simple friction its fingers gliding like water over stone somehow not just reading but knowing the water a half mile downstream tasting just perceptibly of granite because somehow here in this living room upon this sofa I am on Everest and can taste the upper atmosphere and see everything I forgot there was to see and I can explain nothing but understand everything and then because before the dryer's buzz or the movie's end respectfully, promptly, aptly summons us before the phone rings or the macaroni begins to burn the lightning returns to the heart of the cloud the thunder is restored singing baritone rings around the rain waiting to pour out again and we unfold Here's a question that I've asked of other spoken word artists, and I'd really like to hear your thoughts. Do you think that a spoken word artist creates a closer connection to their audience, like in comparison to a traditional music style? I I would hesitate to say that it's it's closer, but I think there is a yeah, there is a rawness there because I think people just have the emotional connections to the things that they do. Um, so I know people who've connected deeply to all sorts of music and even visual art and all, all sorts of things. Um, but I think the, I think that poetry, yeah, it has that vulnerability because it's just a person and their words. Uh, there's so much less to separate you from the artist and from the art. Uh, there's no obfuscating of, of the message because the, there's music or something else happening, yeah, I don't think it's any any more or less effective, but I do think it is very effective. Well, you just brought up the point about music, because spoken word artists often will use a music background. What are your thoughts? Does that add or detract from a performance? <laughs> um, I always have to be really careful. Um, so oh, don't I'd be careful. Just say what you think. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, I, yeah, people say this all the time to me. It's a running joke with my friends and I, um, because people often will come up and say like, Hey man, do you ever, do you ever think about adding music to your poems? And like, you know, I probably hear that like once a month for nine years. And also sometimes people have said it in a way that I feel like really devalues what I'm doing because they'll they'll say things like, hey, that was really cool. But if you added music to it, man, it would just really make it more passionate or something, which always, always feels rough. Um, but see, I'm not so sure that it does add to it. And that's why I was asking you that question. Yeah. So I, 
I like agree and disagree. Uh, Levi the Poet's one of my favorite artists. He might just, yeah, be my favorite artist. Um, I think he's been adding music to his stuff for uh, years now. And I think the poems and the music that he's putting out are, there aren't words. They're so good. Uh, Cataracts is such an important record for our time. Correspondence is a literal masterpiece. And they're they're full of music. I think Levi does a really good job. Uh, his vocals are mixed right in the front. So he's very, very intentional about making sure that every word is heard. Um, music is not for me. I think that's what I've settled on. Uh, I do sometimes perform with people who play music for me. Usually happens like once or twice a year. We'll just be like I'll end up playing a bar and it's a bar where people are there to drink. It's not a show with a bar. It's a bar with a show. And that's not a very conducive listening environment for someone just shouting. So I'll get a friend to play with me or something. Um, I want to keep away from the music because I think my words are so important and they're so important to me and I want people to hear exactly what I'm saying. And, and I really believe that poetry is not a bastard art. It doesn't, it doesn't need a helping hand. Like if my words are not captivating enough for you, then I think I'm probably doing something wrong and I need to work on my performance or the poem itself. Um, so I have a lot of friends that do poetry with music and I think it's really good and I like it. But for me, I just I just want it to be one person to another, just words. And I want my art to stand up on its own two feet. Maybe we should hear more about that then. So when you begin working on a new collection of poems, do you look into giving it a theme or a concept? Um, usually I don't. Usually I just look at what I've been writing, what I've been feeling. I, I just pray about like what God wants me to say and... I'll build off of whatever I have and look to see which poems go together. I did once have two love poems and I was like, man, these are really cool. And this is at the time it was unlike anything I had done. Um, so I went and yeah, worked on writing more love poems and that became my EP yellow, um, that came out in like 2013. Um, but usually it's just like, okay, I've been writing and these are things that I like can we shape them together or, or how do they go together? Um, with the new album, I had really wanted to put love poems and not love poems together. And I had some poems and I was thinking about, all right, like how do they go together? How do I frame this? And then also the poems I had left to write, I was, I started driving towards, okay, like I know what poems I have. How can these poems all work together? Um, but it usually just starts from me having drafts and what I've been playing around with. And I try to build, from what's already there. Let's be honest. I wanna go to the movies with you. Buy you popcorn, open the door for you, do the cliched arm trick and know that you let me do it. I wanna take you out for ice cream after, spout my opinions animatedly over paper cups of Neapolitan, hoping to impress you, and then realize how stupid I sound and apologize. I want to put my jean jacket around you and drive all night while you sleep. Have you wake up on the edge of the Grand Canyon or stuck in traffic outside Manhattan. The city lights singing some kind of song too beautiful for me to understand. Beyond how they silhouette you with the warmth of St. Patrick's gold engravings. I want to buy plane tickets while you change down the hall in the classy hotel named after a person we've never heard of. Whisk you away after morning coffee and toast to Paris or Beijing. Spend weeks backpacking past vineyards or alongside the Great Wall. 
I want to explore reefs in the Caymans with you, make snow angels on Kilimanjaro, dance with you in Seattle like it's raining just for us. And the car horns and gawking pedestrians are only signs that the floor really has been yielded. I want to fly you to Alaska just for the salmon, and Istanbul for the baklava, Moscow for caviar, and Jerusalem for matzah. And maybe the churches too. But let's be honest again. Even if I had the money for all of that, as we waited out layovers in strange airports and crawled exhausted into expensive linens beside exotic lacquer tables or into worn-out sleeping bags somewhere in the foothills of the Alps, I know all I'd ever really want is you. Sitting at home between my legs on the sun-bleached carpet in my living room, leaning your body against mine, your head upon my right shoulder, your lips pressed to my neck like blue smoke mist skirting a ridge in the southern Appalachians, my arms wrapping about yours like the roots of mangroves growing together in the Florida Keys. Eventually, as the night wore on in the same slow rhythms of long car rides home down dark Virginia highways, our faces bathed in the soft turquoise glow of the dash, I'd want to switch places, get up ostensibly to change the channel from one overdone late night action flick to another, not really caring at all whether it was Independence Day or Men in Black 2 or Die Hard 4, because I'd really just want to be between your legs then, falling asleep with my head upon your stomach, my cheeks soaking into the age-frayed fibers of your high school track sweatshirt, thinking to myself about gender roles, how real men really just want to be held sometimes, and knowing that my fingernails flowing down the meridians of your back's cotton seas are really the only transportation I'll ever need. Your forehead and toes, my poles, your hip bones, the ends of my earth. Chris gave his vision of romantic love on hemispheres. But his poems don't always deal with happy topics. That comes up on this part of our chat. The reason that I'd brought that up was because I thought I was catching a bit of a theme on your move release. Because it has poems that deal with death, like eschatology and autopsies, and oh exuberant death. Yeah, I think I think for that, that was probably just something... Um, that was just your emo phase? Yeah, well... <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it's so cliche because it's like, well, another poet thinking about death. But uh, yeah, I think I think death is... Uh, it, it sounds so silly to say, but it's really real. Like, it's the thing that will come for all of us and where we are is necessarily temporary because we all know that we leave here eventually. I have spent and, and often continue to spend a lot of time thinking about death and the implications of death. And, and as a Christian, like I believe that death is a good thing. And, you know, that's what I'm supposed to believe, but I don't always believe that. And I think wrestling with like, like what Christ's death means and, and what death means for me and what's promised yeah, I saw a quote once and this person said, like, when are you going to stop writing about uh, poems about love and death? And and the poet responded, whenever there's something else to write about. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that way often. <laughs> You've already brought up about your faith a number of times. Is that what inspires you, your Christian faith? Yeah, I mean, it's transformed my life and how I see the world and 
yeah, it's like all of me, I think. So I can't, you know, I can't help but write from it. Yeah, the way that I see the world. And there's a dude, Preston Phillips. Um, he's a folk Americana artist. And he said at a festival that we played a couple years ago um, that the Christian's job is to act as a tour guide and, and to point out what God is doing. And I think that gave words to something I felt a lot. Um, as I've had a feeling for a long time, um, I grew up really into uh, like mid-2000s pop punk, like Reliant K is my favorite band and like just positive bands. And, and sometimes those bands get criticized for maybe not engaging with the hardness of life, um, which is a fair criticism. But I think something Reliant K always did really well was pointing out the hard, but then pointing out the good. And I think the reality of life is that everyone finds the hard, like no one needs help finding suffering or pain, but, but we often do need a, a helping hand uh, to find what's underneath the pain or where it's all going or some sort of light or hope. And my, my teacher said that art is a way of seeing and that all that we create is just us taking, you know, the, the lenses we've been given and just like gently holding them up to other people's eyes and helping them see. Um, so I, I hope that that's like what my art does is it helps people like see the bad, but also see the love that I think the universe is hinged on in God. And that's what I appreciate you being so honest in your poems. Being a Christian, does happiness outweigh the struggles? Whew. That's a good one. And my wife just walked in and I'm looking at her. We, uh, we've talked a lot about suffering uh, the last few months and few years. We've had a lot of hardship um, in, our, in our friend groups. And, and, and I feel like that sounds so cliche when I say like, ah, oh, my friends are having a hard time or it doesn't sound like it has a lot of weight, but, uh, the way that we live our lives, like, because we're involved in art, I think art, um, there's something really cool about it where there people just open up really fast. You know, there's this implicit pressure of like, Hey, you're only in town for the show tonight. Like we only might have these six hours and then I may not see you for two years, uh, which happens sometimes, um, so people, regardless of faith, uh, just become really real, really fast. And we're really close uh, with a lot of our friends. They're our family. And there's been a lot of pain. Uh, man, I just think there's so much suffering. One of our best friends, uh, we just talk a lot about suffering with him and, and what, what are we to make of man's place in the universe. And I think, I think that joy is underneath all of it. But I think suffering is a part of the path. I think that's what we see in the, the person of Christ and throughout the Bible that there's just a lot of hurt and that's part of being alive, but then it becomes reconciled in Christ. And then there, there is something greater, but we can't not suffer and we can't not acknowledge the suffering. Uh, my wife and I've had a lot of trouble wrestling with, there's a lot of theology in churches that seems to minimize suffering, but I think God is so very acknowledging of it. So we need to be as well. And you find joy through it and at the bottom of it, but not by pretending it doesn't exist. Absolutely. That was a good answer. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Yeah, we've spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I think, too, we're called as Christians to join in the suffering, not just to get out of our own, but to join in with others. And that is uncomfortable and difficult and not what I'm looking to do most days. But I think it's what we're called to and I, yeah, I hope that that's something that we can share in, in, a, in a godly way. 
Oh, exuberant death, you trickster, you. What a magnificent sting you pull. And one man, too. How impressive you are and what longevity you have. The same tale repeated, 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 repeated. Uh, with only a fine alteration here. A casual substitution there. A minor, minor, minor magnification for effect. And sometimes not even that. Oh, exuberant death, I know your secret. The truth upon which you've woven your pathetic web of farce. You sham death, you mockery. You are no eternity, no fate to fear, no cause for trepidation. You're nothing more than a gateway, death. A station where I will someday catch the train with the bloody ticket. And a thankful yet entirely undeserving heart. Oh, exuberant death, your hood's been pulled back for me to see your greedy little eyes and your filthy mustache that curls at the ends like a child writhing as he's found out. I can even smell your foul breath, death, with a festering flesh of deceit that's been hanging there for millennia. Now that I know you, death, can see you and your fraud, I have nothing more to say. Safe, get away, get away, get away, go far from me with your swindling ways. I want no part of your trickery, death, nor your falsehoods either. Your claims, death, hold scant more weight than those of a bedtime story. You insist, death, upon masquerading as infinite, omnipresent, and all those words of power, death, that you are not. No more will I bow to your charade, no matter your persistence, energy, or will. No more will I fear you, death, a depthless abyss that merely echoes the ersatz roars of a laughable, toothless beast. Oh, exuberant death, through Christ's blood, no more will I bow to you. The length of your poems vary enormously. I mean, <laughs> some are as short as 30 seconds. And then you take it to the other extreme with the poem, I think I'm saying this right, 152.42? Yeah, that's the one. Running 10 and a half minutes. <laughs> yeah, it's 12 minutes when you, uh, when you do the revised version. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's wild. That was a special one. Um, yeah, I think that's the cool thing about poetry is um, it's really funny when people you're asked like, oh, yeah, like define poetry. What is that? What is a poem? And it's sort of like a a weird catch all where like fiction is like pretty clearly defined. Um, flash fiction makes it a little messy, but generally it's like, oh, fiction is a story that's not real. Nonfiction is anything that's real. And then poems are this weird amorphous category that catch all sorts of strange things um so the shorter poems on leftover hymns um that was a lot of stuff that i was writing in college that i i really liked and uh i thought were important most spoken words seems to clock in between like two and a half to three minutes i've never actually done a slam but i'm pretty sure a slam poem has to be under three minutes and ten seconds so a lot of spoken word that people encounter is around that length um I thought the short poems were cool. Uh, I went to college for poetry, so I got trained as like a page poet. And I, I thought those poems were valuable, even though they're short. So I wanted to put those out. And then I also found great freedom in studying people like Walt Whitman, um, Matthew Dickman. Matthew Dickman's my favorite poet. People who write these long, epic, just flowing poems. And I, I really a fan of like the New York School of Poetry, which has this like crazy swing to it that just embraces life and movement and 
everything's in the game. You can do anything you want. Uh, 152 is sort of like a, a crazy experience for me. I hope you have your snacks and coffee beside you. Here comes that long poem, 152.42. Walking down the Russian literature section makes me feel like a sinner. Insensitive, Dostoevsky and the other jawbreakers. You know, Tolstoy, Solzhenitsyn, Turgenev, Dumbledore. Every one of them keeping their sadness in their beards. Epic, masculine sellers of a people's despair overflowing onto bland, black suits. The weight of generations raised on vodka and potatoes and cold statues. Just flipping the pages, I can hear the coughs of tuberculosis and pneumonia, the click of malnourished bones. Sure, we're generalizing here, but every volume comes off the shelf like a tombstone, but also like an anvil, because the grief is that heavy, and also because the Central Party ran out of tombstones years ago. You can stack all of the Russian literature together and have enough height to change a light bulb, and enough sadness to create a black hole. So please, please, don't stack all the Russian literature together. Sometimes one sentence carries more sadness than Simple Plan's whole discography and weighs about as much as the entire Oxford Dictionary of English, which is a lot of weight for a bookshelf or even for a human being. But sadness is like smoke, and sometimes you just need to open a window, let it diffuse into the greater air, get swallowed up. So let's open a window. Let's open a window and grab the Oxford Dictionary English and bench press that baby. Get swole, like Arnold, but really like Ryan Gosling. Hey babe, read me those 17 syllable words. Let me soak in their sound. Defenestration, smaragdin, sesquipedalian. Let me luxuriate in language. Now teach me Russian. Teach me Greek. Let's read about the implementation of elementary Russian into primary schools. Hold the calloused covers like our grandparents' hands when we were children. The spine flying between them like a rope bridge. Our feet walking on air. What a joy to be alive. To breathe. To hold a book another man held in the spring of 1984. Maybe a woman. How old? How did he or she feel about lilacs? About the Cold War? About macroeconomics? Uh, so many opinions held beneath the skin and bones that held this book up against the rudimentary physical forces acting upon it in the spring of 1984 and also acting upon it now. That makes us colleagues, compatriots. We've at least one thing in common. There is a person who hand drew the typeface for this book. I bet Russian people have different fonts like we do. Vanny and Helvetica and Times New Roman and Cyrillic and different and wonderful. My friend Jonah promises me that anything's interesting if you hold it under a microscope. And my friend Jonah's soul is a big, big microscope. He tells me of the homeless people who come to his bank and deposit Catholic charities checks for $7.25 and tell them about their cats. Homeless people have bank accounts and cats. I found one once, climbing the fire escape of an abandoned rehabilitation center for youth in downtown Lynchburg. I found the white and orange cat's brand new food bowl and water dish sitting new and terrifying and out of place beneath a weed grown from the building for so long that it had a half-inch stalk and leaves the size of decorative 17th century serving plates. Homeless people are people. 
The Oxford English Dictionary tells me there are lost words, but sometimes I think we just lose each other in our words. People lost like trees in the forests of our phrases and labels. The U.S. tax code was 73,594 pages long in 2013, and I used 500 pages of computer paper every semester, sometimes more, and I've never read the tax code. Depending on how you calculate, just me and the tax code are anywhere from three to nine trees, and my page count alone could be enough to start losing people. Pray over me in Chinese. There are scores of Chinese dialects and Jesus speaks every one of them. Jesus doesn't lose people. Pray over me in Danish too. In Swahili, why don't you? Jesus knows all the languages. Let's sing the national anthems of other countries. They have them too, you know. There are 150 countries. That's 150 histories all bumping their geopolitical chests and trading their minerals and their dollar store toys and their oil and their literature like Pokemon cards. The earth is the bushes at recess and we are all hiding, passing Charizards for cargo ships of coconut oil and tanks. And speaking of, tanks have tow trucks. Tanks have tow trucks and those tow trucks for tanks have turrets on top because tow trucks for tanks sometimes need turrets. A friend of a friend got a concussion in one so bad it split the two hemispheres of his brain like a heart. The tow truck for tanks hit a jersey wall trying to turn around because sometimes tow trucks for tanks need to turn around too. My friend of a friend got his concussion, each brain hemisphere deciding on a mutual trial separation at the behest of the bolt in the ceiling that cracked his helmet. And the divorce, his ability to build things, got forgotten. Bounced about between the parents, but another feeling at home. My friend of a friend is currently building a barn somewhere in southern Connecticut, painfully, slowly trying to relearn how to build again, to coax his talent out from under the stairs, to come home. Let's rewind. They have jersey walls in Iraq. They have people in Iraq. People who drink beer and chew gum and text while they poop and have babies. There are daycares in Iraq. The people in Iraq have 46 chromosomes. We have 46 chromosomes. The terrorists have 46 chromosomes. The members of ISIS, their impotent machetes hacking away at all the wrong oppressors, have 46 chromosomes. They are made in the image of God. Jesus was probably brown. Jesus probably looked like a terrorist. Jesus was a terrorist or a revolutionary or something semantically similar. Jesus was a threat. It's amazing what you can do with words. Jesus was and is king. Jesus threatens our comfort and our status quo. Jesus makes me want to kiss you. Not on the lips, but on the head in deep love. I want to hold you. I want to wrap you up and dance, spin you beneath the warm lights. We are alive. Our God is alive. I currently am sitting on a wide white marble bench beneath a skylight, leaning against clear glass. I am walking on air again. The art building's walls are lined with the pieces of people's souls, glistening strips strung up and down like veins, and this bench is shockingly well designed. A startling blessing. There's music playing. Someone is practicing the piano. That's something I can't do. My fingers can't even fathom it when I ask them, and that's just electricity. Me asking them, and I'm surrounded by an unfathomable number of indefinable little specks of matter. Whatever matter is, bumping into each other at just the right time, just the right way to produce a student I can't even see playing Chopin in a back room I can't see either. What a miracle.
What a miracle to be alive, to breathe, to sit on shockingly well-designed white marble benches and glass buildings. What a miracle to reach out and put my fingers in Dostoevsky's beard and comb out the sadness. What a miracle to watch Jesus combing and waxing the cellars of our sadnesses, catching all of it up in his hands, raking our sins into mutton chops and planting seeds in our super fun hearts and growing corn and squash and pumpkins. What a joy to watch the harvest come in. What a joy to study Greek grammar, to interlace fingers, to dance, to have O'Hara tell me of the tree's spectacles. I can hear them breathing now too. And Pablo, I can see those flowers that don't bloom and I can see their light and I can carry it within me now too, next to Yuri Gordon and his fonts. Oh Yuri, what a joy to be alive. The soul is an empty library and I feel daily God is checking the books back in. One by one, I am growing up in the knowledge of God, the speaker of worlds, the designer of kneecaps and holding cheeks and palms and hair between fingers, the designer of taste buds, Chipotle and Chick-fil-A, a ballet across my tongue. I am in love with being alive, with the music that's on, Jesus dropping a needle on the turntable, the earth one grand 45, America a hymnal, and the Holy Spirit teaching us to sing it. Syria is one too, and the ocean, Pacific and Atlantic, two dialects like Chinese and Jesus hears them all. Jesus speaks them all, spoke them all first, teaches them all. Night and day, the heavens pour forth speech. Pray over me in Dutch, worship with me in Hindi, shout with me in Ebonics. God has seen me naked and still calls me son. Do the electric slide with me beneath the stars. What language do they speak? Who knows? But I know it's praise. Teach me the hustle. Let's hug everyone and my friend Bradley, but let's do it in Swedish and make Swedish meatballs for everyone. Swedishly. God is a generous God. Let's eat ramen and raw cookie dough all night and give thanks for minimum wage and yachts and play Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2 with old friends and their wives. Praise King Jesus. There's music on. What a miracle that two people can love each other in a time of nuclear war and plots to bomb everyone and I can eat raw cookie dough with them and do kickflips and not break my legs. Praise King Jesus, there is music on and so I am dancing through the rows of Russian literature, through the lobbies of libraries of schools I don't go to, through the grocery store aisles and gas station parking lots, through the Capitol Rotunda, through Tiananmen Square and Times Square and Trafalgar Square and Trailside Elementary's Foursquare Court, through Chipotle, my favorite restaurant, through Chernobyl and Cape Canaveral in the subway, riding that Ferris wheel and doing the hokey pokey and chang 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 di chang shabop all the way to the top, dancing all over my grave. Jesus and me and Tolstoy and my parents and everybody, we are all dancing and we are all singing and it's a hosanna and a hallelujah and amen. You never stop putting out poems. Your new collection, It's All Joy, releases May 17th. You haven't given it a theme, but you've mentioned about the love aspect to it. Yeah. So I, I put out Move in 2012, and then I I felt like a real pressure to like put something out right away. So, so Yellow came out only like six months later. Uh, I essentially had no idea what I was doing in terms of like <laughs> album cycle and, and rhythm and stuff. I just thought I needed to put something else out because the poems – on move, I had been most of them I'd been performing for about two years at that point. So I, I felt like, oh, I got to really keep stuff coming out. And I had those two love poems and I really dug them. So in my mind, it was like putting out an acoustic EP. But, but since then, like, I think for me, all of my poems are 
are one. Like I think they all point to God's glory and beautiful things in the earth. So I, I didn't like that the love poems were separate from the normal poems. Like I myself thought about that. A lot of people that I interacted with brought it up that there's like normal poems and love poems. And I always longed for them to be one. Um, You know, like the Bible has song of songs, which is this like very, very, very graphic sex book, sort of like it's about (laughs) a man and a woman. And there's like a lot of sexual stuff and a lot of romantic love in it. Um, so I just wanted everything to be one. And so this is something I've like been longing for, for a really long time to just bridge them together. And then for me, like I, I do see things in themes and I, uh, the Bible says that uh, a man and a woman's love is, uh, like an, as a husband and wife is a metaphor for Christ and his church. And I think these poems work on, yeah, like when I love my wife, like I'm loving my wife, but I'm also seeing and loving God and this weird messiness. I think that's been one of the big themes of my life is the last couple of years, I, most of the things that I was certain of, like most of the institutions, most of the bands, the genres of music, the things that I was doing, my friends, uh, a lot of it has all sort of just fallen apart or changed really drastically. And it was all these things that I was confident in and God sort of just made it where I, I don't have anything except for him. And I feel so assured of that, even though most of the things that I felt sure of like churches and and friend groups and the way things worked, spirit filled, hardcore, like all of it, it all just sort of fell, but then God was still there. And I don't really control any of it. And I think I, the new record is just trying to wrestle with like finding peace and feeling this crazy, ever-changing swirl of existence. But somehow God is always there and he's still loving me and he's still loving his people and the earth. And yeah, it's so like when I love my wife, like I see God. And when I see God, I see my wife and it, it all just kind of messes together. Well, something interesting I found about the poems on It's All Joy is your use of geographical metaphors for love, or maybe it's vice versa. I guess I'm thinking of county government and Paris. Yeah, yeah. Um, those are, <laughs> yeah, I, I was a history major, and so history and geography are pretty closely tied. Those are things I'm familiar with, and they work really well for me. Um, and then Paris is just... Goodness, Paris is beautiful. I it sounds silly to like Paris as a poet, you know, what a cliche, but <laughs> goodness, that city is incredible. Yeah, I don't speak French. I'm not a part of the culture. I've only been a couple times and I don't really uh, necessarily go in for like a specific place. Like I really value people where we spend most of our time in Michigan. Um it's ugly. It's it's terribly ugly. It's just flat and full of liquor stores and old homes, but but the people are wonderful. So we love coming here. Um Paris though, we barely know anybody, but there's just something about that place and it it unfolds and it feels magical and old and holy and wonderful. And so I just I feel things like the second I step out of a car or a train whenever we get there, I just feel something really deep. And I wanted to push for that. And I feel that way about my wife. Like I just feel something deep that I could probably spend my whole life looking at and trying to talk about and describe and I would never finish it. 
I wander your body like the streets of Paris, not the Eiffel Tower or the Louvre or the Arc de Triomphe, though they are beautiful too, and not in search of Hemingway or Stein or some false nostalgia, but rather Rue Oberkampf, Rue Sorbier, the backs of your arms, the apartment I had a bunk in the first time I came to the city, the cheap wine in that small kitchen that late night, the way I knew exactly where I was, could feel the earth turning beneath me like a kaleidoscope, the valleys on each side of your ankles, each of my fingertips opening to your light, each so intently focused on your shops, your cafes, your flats, the kebabs and Thai restaurants, the city of immigrants and fourth generation locals, each centimeter a new turn, a new street, you open ever inward, flowers opening like hands to the morning light, ever deeper, ever past the next turn, I take my time, my finger pads, microscopes, I am studying this great mystery, the kind that is not so much solved as it is descended into, the deepest lake by cow but not cold and with light at the bottom. I am walking ever further, inward, turning corners, pressing in, rounding the bends. I can tell you the number of balconies on each building. This one has five with an old woman on the third who calls to her friends in the street as if the town is theirs. I count your freckles. I stare up at her. She makes me feel so small, her face a city, each wrinkle a street just like this one, unfolding ever inward. She is a new universe I have just found, right here in the morning light on one of the balconies of your inner thigh, and somehow it's here, shining above me, outside of me, in front of me, too far away and large for me to hold. I can only be before it. She, this universe, the person, this piece of you is so high, and I do not understand what she's saying, but I hear her and I begin to know. You just heard the poem Paris, inspired by Chris Bernstorff's favorite city. I mentioned earlier that Chris is prolific. He's also generous because he offers his poetry for no charge on Bandcamp. So you can find him by searching out his last name, B-E-R-N-S-T-O-R-F. I'm going to have some fun next week on The Antidote. For some artists, their main band doesn't reflect all of their creativity. That's when they bring in a side project. We'll have many popular artists who deliver music that's very different from what they're usually known for. Okay, let's get Chris back to finish our talk about his new It's All Joy release, and we'll close up with the poem called One. Have a good week, and I'll see you next time. Even though the album is entitled It's All Joy, it isn't always joyful because you've included a poem called Dirt. Now, I don't want to put an adult-only rating on this show, so I'm not going to be airing it, but you have to explain why be so graphic. (laughs) Oh, man, you're the first person to talk about this poem. We're not... We're not doing a single for it, and I don't think I'm going to be performing it on the upcoming tour, so I'm just waiting to see when people say something. Um, I uh, I just really think that we miss it. Yeah, if you're not a believer or if you're not raised around a Christian culture, then this may not make a lot of sense to you. Um, but we just, we just miss it. So much of Christian culture is so sanitized, and it's not... I don't know. It just doesn't feel designed to engage with the whole truth. Um, the Bible is really hard. The Bible says a lot of things that are not um, cute selling points. They're things that are hard to accept as a Christian, 
Um, and I think we often act like, oh, well, God just loves people and that's that. Like, you dumb atheist, if you just think about it. And and in reality, the Bible is a really challenging book and God is not always who I want him to be. And I've, I've watched a lot of friends get really hurt. I've watched myself really struggle and suffer because we're taught this really easy, simple, sanitized version of Christianity. And then when you start reading the Bible, you're confronted with really difficult, hard things. Or when you start living as a person, when you like become an adult and I'm 20, 28 now, I'll be 29 next month. And as I've lived more, um, the world is cruel and rotten and ugly a lot. The first homeless person that I talked to, I could barely understand him because he spoke in this crazy, like spluttering something. And I'm pretty sure he told me that he raped someone. It it was horrifying. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is not the videos they showed me at church. The church was like, yeah, man, if you love homeless people, it just turns out that they're great people. And we were all really missing the mark. And it, it just didn't deal with the the suffering and the hurt and the the crippling realities of life. And I, I think the Bible does, and I think God does, but I think it's really important for us to be honest about it. You know that, yeah, that opening line's pretty rough, but, but it, it's, that's how God came to earth. Like, I don't need a Jesus that just helps me out when Cindy is not so nice at work. Like I need a Jesus that deals with the fact that my mom's been blind almost my whole life. Wow. Like, I need a Jesus that deals with the fact that my friend's brother just stopped cancer treatment and is in hospice. Like, I I need a God that deals with that. And I, I believe Yahweh of the Bible is that God. But I think we need to embrace it and we need to not hide from the hard things. Because I think God will walk us through the hard things and we'll find real peace and love and joy in that. But we can't, we can't skip them. And I think when we skip them, we lie about who God is and then we confuse people and we become a stumbling block and... Yeah, it drives me crazy and it's really hard. So I just wanted to be honest about all of it and hope that God would shine through through that. Tell me something. Was there a special meaning for closing It's All Joy with the poem called One? That just felt right. Yeah, the last line is the pot says to the potter, keep going. And I think that's just where I feel I am in my life. Um there's a lot of stuff that's hard. I've got a lot of friendships that are still broken or unresolved. Um, yeah, I'm, my mom's blind. Like, that's so fine. My mom's lived a wonderful life, and I'm so thankful for her. But there, there is a lot in my life that's not resolved, and there's things in my own heart that I don't understand or that I struggle with. There's doubts that I have, and there's just, like I, like I said, I'm a history major, too. There's so much hurt, and the human race is guilty of so much, and somehow through all of that at the bottom of my soul, I I know that God's good and I see him be good and I see him love me and love my mom and love my dad and my family and my friends. And I see the change that Christ has wrought in the lives of everybody I know who's ever, never walked with him. So I, yeah, I just wanted to finish the record. I'm like, it is all joy. Uh, The Bible says that God is working everything for good, for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And I think yeah, and all of the Holocaust and the genocide and the crime and the hunger and the suffering and the brokenheartedness, like at the bottom of it, there's the pierced hand of Jesus, like lifting us back up. And so I just want God to keep doing what he's doing because I know it's going somewhere good and I'm thankful despite 
all of the pain. <laughs> Chris, thanks so much for coming on The Antidote and sharing about your poems. And I guess best of luck with It's All Joy. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> I get why Peter started to sink. The winds offer pretty convincing arguments sometimes, like Glenn Beck and his chalkboard. The last hundred years in Chechnya are a decent reason for atheism. Sarin Gas's existence and the thought that someone made it on purpose are two more. It's not hard to become Bishop's armadillo, raising its weak male fist to the sky. Stoked on the wave instead of the ocean, Christ's core community, all my friends and me, got slammed on the beach like false idols in a purge. We broke open like oysters. We spit our pearls like loose teeth, returning the bits of stained glass we'd enshrined with our idolatrous gold and wood. I don't know if God did it or shaped it, if it was our mid-twenties arriving or the efficacy of deconstruction or just some will-o'-the-wisp screw tape found on Craigslist. Who can say? We are all flat little rectangles interacting with an infinitely dimensioned entity in an incomprehensible reality and sometimes it's hard to tell. We hold our pieces of colored glass with bloody fingers. Love fits in a hand, eternity in your lungs, yet God is love and eternity endless. The duality confounds the nearness and presence and comingness of the kingdom all at once here and coming and inside us. Understanding is a tightrope strung up between two towers in the fog. Arminius and Calvin each holding an end with Piper and dies and Jesus dancing and strolling and asleep in the middle like on the boat in that storm. Steve McAlpine says all God's characteristics mutually inform one another. There is no Venn diagram, just lots of whole pies. The Chicago deep dishness of God, the pepperoni and mozzarella always mutually informing one another. So maybe it's two circles joined, me and you rolling over and on top of one another in our bed, turning on an axis the way I found the universe's center on a curb outside of Domino's when I was 17. Life and death and 16th century literature and Gaddafi, the Planeteers and Eli Whitney all flying around while I ate pizza with Ricky in the stillness of a sunset. There's nowhere to to go, everywhere to be. It's all a kaleidoscope turning. God, a gem illuminated from within, us constantly spinning, finding new shapes and colors, but always one and always deeper. Eternity is a place, a point in time, and also the endlessness we are always descending into. Savor it. Let your roots down. Let yourself grow. The whole world is holy. Every atom shaking, all of matter working out its faith in fear and trembling. I feel like I should take off my shoes, feel the telegraph tapping of it all on my bare feet. The heliocentric solar system is a sacrament. I say it like the Lord's prayer. Each planet passing through my fingers, each one going around and around the sun, going over and over a coat of paint the way Yusuf's poems are him talking around and around the subject, walking around the pond, saying so much more about it. The way electrons orbit their nuclei, the way I imagine Mary going over and over the words she'd been given, treasuring it in her heart. Walt Whitman published Leaves of Grass over and over again, expanding and revising and basking in the light of it all. Barry Lopez put his arm around my shoulder and brought me to his microscope and showed me every brushstroke of America, every state, city, town, hamlet, neighborhood, house is a world all unto itself. Ant-Man fell to the bottom, shrinking smaller and smaller, finding new level of existence after new level of existence until he finally found love and the stillness at the bottom of it all. I am buried by my smallness, beating my chest at the back of the sanctuary, consumed by all the sweat and weight and dirt. God lives 
lifts me like Peter from the water, like a flower to the light, and reminds me of Vienna that day in March. I see it like a feeling, like I'm there again. I love the flowers and the doors. Sie sind so schön. Ich habe keine Freundin gehabt, als ich ihnen gesehen habe. Aber jetzt habe ich eine Frau und ich will ihr sie geben. Die ganze Stadt, wrapped up in a bouquet. Ich liebe dich. I love you. The words of God, the axis, run through like a nail. What it all turns upon. Everything spins on a potter's wheel. Electrons around their nuclei. The record on its turntable. The earth on its axis. Pizza dough on an index finger. The moon around the earth. The gooseneck kettle pouring its concentric circles on the coffee grounds. The planets around the sun. Paul said he only knew Christ and Christ crucified when he was among the Corinthians. That's two things, but really just one. And everything else, eating and talking and theology and laughing and tent making must have come from that seed. We are caught in the slow motion, the present and the future and the past, the record spinning, the song playing, the abiding, the stillness, the waiting, all the colors of light returning to white, each and every moment and everything holding up its piece of the glass and God spinning them all together. It crushes me, breaks me open, just like Narelle said, like the alabaster jar and all my fear and anger and love and yearning and thrashing and hope and worry and longing all pour out and it's myself and my spirit and all I have where I am in the process and it's bare before God, a drink offering and the light washes in and I am reminded and know again that I am loved, that my friends will love each other again, that my mom will see again, that she already does and will again and I can't keep it all together. The apologetics and the questions and the hurt and Rwanda and the hypocrisy and the good intention and the love and Andre's affair and the fear and the abuse and the hopes, everyone blundering forward in some kind of upward tornado of grace, but somehow he is gravity and a hand and a silence and an easy yoke and a relief and a voice and a song before I can even try to pull all the ravaged ends back together again. He is there like Spider-Man on that ferry, but better and the web holds flawlessly and the water begins to feel like solid ground again and there is nothing and everything and I am encompassed, consumed and one. Yes and amen and hallelujah, the deafening and silent and final and honest and grateful murmur of my prostrate spirit and then I, the uncertain, thankful, confused, certain, speechless, humbled, rejoicing, scaleless pot, finally say to the potter, keep going.